You can subscribe to this show by way of the subscribe at Substack button at truthjihad.com. The key thing is don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Highest moment in the last eight years. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was uh, was 9/11 itself. Welcome to the special live broadcast of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett. I've been doing this show one way or another since 2006 on all of the biggest alternative networks, RBN, GCN, WTPRN, and on and on and on. Now going out on No Lies Radio out of Berkeley and the UnsReview, UNZ.com, as well I'm as my Substack. But the person who called has a voice mailbox that has com. not been set up yet. And Revolution.radio is, of course, Goodbye. the spot where we first put this out live. And they do deserve your support. Revolution.radio is, indeed, the premier listener-sponsored free speech radio network. Okay, we're trying to get a hold of our first-hour guest. Well, first, let me introduce the second-hour guest. Uh, in the second hour, bringing on for the first time on Truth Jihad Radio, Gerald Sussman, who's just published a new article on the Russia-Ukraine conflict propaganda war. Hello, we are not available Gerald now. Sussman has, uh, he teaches at Portland State University, which I think is the same place where I've been harassed by some Antifa type. <laughs> but uh, uh, Gerald Sussman's article is terrific, and his work is generally very sound. His analysis of Ukraine gets into the historical background that you need to know to understand what's actually happening right now. The all-important context that our mainstream media always ignores spins. Or usually they give you not even the kindergarten version or the nursery school version. They give you the baby talk version of the conflict and the background to the extent that they even mention the background. So these two articles are excellent go-to sources for people who actually want to know where these problems in Pakistan and Ukraine are coming from. And they both are coming from crises that developed in the immediate aftermath of World War II. And I'd probably better get my guests on to give you the full story on that because they're both more knowledgeable than I am on these two issues. We're trying to get hold of Zafar Bangash. Zafar Bangash is the director of the Institute of Contemporary Islamic Thought and the president of the Islamic Society of York Region, which is a suburb of Toronto. Hello. The person you are calling writes has regularly at the present uh, online, which is the best Muslim affairs publication members. in English. Stay on the line. Okay. Uh, hello. Assalamu alaikum. Is this Safar? Wa alaikum salam. Kevin, how are you? I'm well. Uh, alhamdulillah. Good to find you. We, yeah, uh, sorry. We some I kind was of talking issue. about... Yeah, I know. Sometimes, uh, you know, this thing... Um, does these funny things, and I'm sorry about that. I was sort of, you know, uh, a little off the off the base. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's. It, I know sometimes the Skype calls don't seem to go through uh, properly yeah. to cell phones these days, and, and some say that's because Bill Gates took over Skype and is trying to run it into the ground because the Skype technology is not built for spying on people, and so it's useless. <laughs> you can only make money off stuff that spies on people. Skype doesn't spy on people, so that's why I like to use it, but they're trying to drive it out of business, apparently. Anyway, uh, so welcome, Zafar. <laughs> it's great to Thank have you back. Thank you very back. much. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I thought your article in the new Crescent International on the current crisis in Pakistan was excellent. And just like uh, second-hour guest Gerald Sussman's article on the Russia-Ukraine propaganda war, you take us back to the founding of Pakistan in 1947 and give us the background we need to actually understand what's going on, which it seems like the mainstream doesn't do. And even, you know, even the sort of you know, expert intellectual mainstream press doesn't do a very good job of this. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what happened to Imran Khan, who seemed to be doing a very good job. Uh, and suddenly there was this very mysterious and dubious uh, uh, quasi-electoral coup. So, so what happened there, and what are the roots of that problem? Well, basically, um, for the first time in Pakistan's history, um, a political leader was doing the kinds of things that people liked. Uh, first of all, when Imran Khan 
came to power in 2018. He obviously did not have an absolute majority. He had to make uh, electoral alliances with uh, other smaller political parties to stay in power. And he had inherited uh, an economy that was in a mess. Uh, These previous rulers of the past 30 years had stolen billions of dollars from Pakistan and stashed it away in Dubai, in London, in other places, buying properties. But when Imran Khan came to power, he, he said that I will work very hard to, uh, first of all, rectify the economic mess. And number two, I will go after these criminals and uh, bring them to trial and force them to cough up the loot. Now, it took him a good two years to uh, fix the economy. In his third year and fourth year, for the first time in 30 years, uh, Pakistan's economy was making progress. He was, um, you know, in in 2021, uh, the economy grew by uh, 5.4% or the GDP actually grew by 5.4%. Sorry, four That's one of the few countries that did well in 2021. Exactly. And he even weathered the, the, the pandemic. I mean, you know, he the way he managed it with um, smart lockdowns, etc. Pakistan was one of the few countries in the world that managed it so well. And then in 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 this year, the GDP actually grew by 6%. And that is quite remarkable. But apart from these things, what really, uh, what really sort of you know terrified his enemies, and particularly the United States, was that he said that uh, Pakistan is not going to play a hired gun to anybody anymore, and that you know, obviously the U.S. was interested in getting military bases in Pakistan after it was driven out of Afghanistan and Pakistan. And of course, Imran Khan said, uh, his famous expression when he was asked, he said, absolutely not, when he was asked whether Pakistan would give military bases to the United States. And that is something that the Americans simply could not stomach. I mean, here was a political leader who was getting very popular, who was doing all the right things. And, you know, the people of Pakistan really had immense confidence in him. And this was, uh, you know, witnessed in the sense that there are about 10 million Pakistanis living abroad. These are, they are referred to as overseas Pakistanis. And Imran Khan made appeals to them and said the country's economy is bad, in bad shape. Instead of sending your money to your loved ones through these um, illegal channels, why don't you use the legal channels of bank transmissions? Because the money would then come into uh, the country's state bank, and it would stabilize the country's economy. And lo and behold, the people had so much faith and confidence in him, and for very good reason, because Imran Khan had established, before coming into politics, he had had established three world-class cancer hospitals in Pakistan by donating his own funds, by using his... um, international reputation as a as a cricket star his connections people you know give tons of money so he basically established three wonderful hospitals in pakistan where 80% of the people receive free treatment because these people are poor then he set up a world class university namal university in his own home city which was linked to bradford university in england so the degrees that are issued by this university are actually degrees that are issued by Bradford universities. That means these degrees, the only university in Pakistan which are recognized worldwide. So the people knew that here is a man who is personally absolutely clean and honest, and he's doing good for the people. But he basically uh, fell foul of the Americans by saying that we are not going to be anybody's slaves. And regrettably, Uh, In Pakistan, the military is unfortunately very closely tied to the Americans. Whether the the government in in Pakistan at any particular time has good relations with the U.S. or not, 
the military always maintains good relations. And the reason for that is that, number one, most of the senior officers in the Pakistani military are, at one stage or another, they, they come for military courses in the United States, where they are essentially recruited by the United States, either through money or by compromising them with women and so on, or whatever, but many of them, and in fact, this is something that has actually already been admitted by some retired generals on television. They said that when they went for their you know, military courses in the United States, the Americans tried to recruit them. One, one general who is now retired, he said it on air, and he said that, of course, you know, not once, but on three separate occasions, the Americans tried to recruit him, and he refused. And so, unfortunately, many of the top generals are very tight with the Americans for whatever favors they, they give to them, etc. And they are used by the Americans to uh, manipulate the political system in Pakistan. One other point I think that your listeners should be aware of, and that is that, regrettably, uh, in Pakistan, uh, like a few other countries, Egypt comes to mind immediately, uh, the military has intruded into all spheres of influence in society. So they interfere in politics, they interfere in economics. The military has set up their own companies, conglomerates, real estate businesses, etc. So they've become uh, not only a state within a state, but in fact, they've come to own the state. And regrettably, their their performance in, in various wars, etc., has been dismal. That, I say, despite the fact that, that the Pakistan army is much better than, for instance, the Egyptian army, but, you know, when it comes to Pakistan's arch-rival India and the main issue that Pakistan has with India regarding Kashmir, uh, the Pakistani military, despite consuming more than 50% of the budget, and that is in the open open budget there are other uh, resources that they usurp that are not accounted for they have not liberated even an inch of kashmiri territory in the last 74 years despite the fact that they have fought many wars and we know that in 1971 uh, the, the military was thoroughly defeated in what was formerly east pakistan and that came to be called bangladesh uh, and, and so the military's uh, actual conduct is not, unfortunately, or performance, should I say, not terribly good. And their interference in politics, and it is through them, the military, that the U.S. used uh, to uh, oust Imran Khan from power by basically what the military did was that it spoke to the other political parties and said, here is an opportunity, we can get rid of him. Uh, you people have done terrible things, but we'll, you know, forgive you for that. You get rid of him, and um, we, once he's out of power, uh, nobody will even mention him or speak about him. He'll he'll become history, and that's where, of course, the military, the Americans, the other political parties made a great mistake because Imran Khan had actually touched the deepest sentiments of the people of Pakistan. They saw in him, for the first time, a ruler who spoke about them, who stood up for them, who was not corrupt, who genuinely wanted to do something good for the people of Pakistan. And so unfortunately, he was removed because it did not suit American interests. And one final point, you know, over the last two, three days ago, or actually last weekend, there was this uh, drone attack in Afghanistan in which the Americans said that they killed Ayman al-Zawahiri, they the leader of al-Qaeda. I mean, Ayman al-Zawahiri had become irrelevant. Uh, Al-Qaeda has been decimated. It was created by the Americans. It, did, it just didn't have any punch or any capacity left. Uh, and perhaps Ayman al-Zawahiri was no longer relevant for them. So they said, okay, let's get rid of him, get him out of the way. And it was a convenient been, political for Biden, too. Sorry? It was a convenient political moment for Biden in the run-up to the 9/11 anniversary. They always exactly. want to remind everybody. Yeah. Exactly, as well as as well as elections coming up. So you know, anytime an American president needs to uh, prove himself, you know, or, or build his macho image, 
then they go and you know eliminate somebody kill somebody in in a distant land but the point that i was trying to uh, make was that you know we know afghanistan is landlocked country now where did that drone uh, enter afghanistan airspace it couldn't have done so through iran's territory because any american aircraft uh, manned or unmanned would have been blown out of the sky the, the iranians would never allow it uh, china is a, is not an option either because there's a very very thin corridor and certainly uh, america and china do not have very good relations at the present time everybody knows that the the other option would have been central asia uh, and all of those uh, central asian republics are under russian influence and there is no way that russia would have allowed or any of those central asian republics would have allowed besides that that flight would have been very very long and drones would uh, a drone would not have been able to sustain such a long flight the only option left was pakistan and it's obvious that once imran khan was removed from power that the military the new rulers etc said to the americans okay you can go ahead and do what you like and so that kind of a dirty game has started again uh, you know when when uh, prior to imran khan's coming to power the americans during uh, obama's time and even prior to that during bush's time uh, the americans had carried out or during obama's time alone more than 400 drone strikes not only in afghanistan but also inside pakistan and the pakistani rulers would just you know keep quiet they wouldn't even admit it if the americans pointed out that we have killed some you know so called terrorists somewhere or another then the pakistani rulers would say oh america shouldn't be doing that they should respect our sovereignty whereas in fact they were all in on this whole thing with the americans because they are american stooges so regrettably what has happened is that um uh, a, a leader of a muslim country who was trying to build his country and to give some dignity and some self respect to his people uh, was removed through this conspiracy and and removed from power and today pakistan's economy is in a mess it is on the verge of defaulting on uh, even interest payments on the billions and billions of dollars in loans that it has taken from the imf from the world bank and other you know countries and institutions so unfortunately uh, the the future looks very grim uh, pakistan's future uh, because of the fact that it is in such a great economic as well as political mess at the present time and of course people might wonder why would the world bank and the imf be in favor of removing imran khan from power if imran khan was uh, presiding over a much better economy that might give pakistan a chance to repay its loans and of course there are answers to that including they don't like uh, public banks and so as you said imran khan was empowering the national bank and having the uh, pakistanis abroad send their money into pakistan through that public bank and you know public banking has actually gotten a lot of leaders in trouble so i i would maybe you could elaborate a little bit on the role of the banksters the imf and world bank in probably participating with the american military and intelligence community in this coup oh absolutely uh, in fact uh, you know the the imf had uh, put forward uh, certain uh, conditions as well as the um there's another organization that is uh, that goes by the abbreviation fatf f a t f which is basically a financial sort of transparency uh, group that had put forward uh, 27 conditions that pakistan must fulfill in order to uh, get out of that gray list because if it is in a gray list then it cannot receive um, loans on favorable terms and the imf of course you know through its uh, so called structural adjustment programs comes along and they insist that you have to not only uh, increase taxes which is of course you know a legitimate uh, economic policy uh, unfortunately in pakistan the vast majority of the people do not pay taxes and imran khan had brought millions of people into the tax bracket because they saw him as an honest person that the people uh, felt that this money would not be stolen by the rulers secondly uh, 
what Imran Khan uh, did was uh, that um, he essentially started to repay back the loans to the IMF. And uh, this naturally uh, is something that the IMF uh, does not want because they want to uh, keep countries under their control. They, they use that mechanism to blackmail them. So, for instance, you know, during Imran Khan's time, uh, the IMF had insisted that uh, uh, he should uh, remove fuel subsidies, increase the price of gas and, you know, other commodities, etc. Uh, and Imran Khan refused. He said that uh, we don't need to do that. Uh, we are quite prepared to give you the interest on your loans and we don't want to overburden our people because, you know, the overwhelming majority of the people, like there are out of the 220 million people, 60 million people in Pakistan live in absolute poverty. And he said that that would prove a crushing burden on the poor people. Uh, and he refused to, uh, and of course, you know, if, if uh, he had in, removed the subsidies on, on fuel, uh, it would have increased the cost of food, which, which is exactly what has happened since Imran Khan was removed from power. Uh, now there are 90 million people living in poverty. So within three months, 30 million people have been added to the poverty list. Food prices have skyrocketed because of fuel price rises. During Imran Khan's time, uh, gas was 150 rupees per liter. Uh, and today it's 250 rupees per liter. Now, in order to give you some idea, during Imran Khan's time, uh, a dollar was, U.S. dollars was worth 177 rupees. Today it is past a 250 rupee mark. Uh, so you can see that the Pakistani currency has depreciated, and since it has to import a lot of raw materials for its industries, those prices have skyrocketed. So it has forced the economy into a tailspin. And of course, the IMF and other, you know, these international sharks have come around and they've told Pakistan that you should start to sell some of your state assets. So the, these criminal rulers that have now been put in power, uh, they have uh, already passed, hurried through their cabinet uh, policies that would normally take more than a year, they, they rushed them through within a matter of days that they can still sell state enterprises like uh, the steel mill, uh, you know, gas and oil corporation, uh, Pakistan International Airlines, and another and other state assets in order to raise funds so that uh, the country would not default. Now. This state of affairs has deliberately been engineered because these IMF uh, loan sharks want to keep Pakistan not only under its thumb but its, or under its foot, but also to uh, bankrupt the country by buying its uh, assets, the state assets, so that it would be in permanent bondage to these uh, international money lenders. And this has happened in a number of other countries, but Pakistan is a prime example. And the fundamental reason which, which many, many observers in Pakistan have pointed out is that ultimately uh, the IMF, the United States, Zionist Israel, they are all after Pakistan's nuclear weapons because Pakistan is the only Muslim country with nuclear weapons and that really bugs them so much that they simply cannot afford for a Muslim country to have uh, any nuclear weapons. And if uh, this state of affairs continues in Pakistan, uh, there are grave fears that Pakistan would be denuclearized. And once that is done, then America can come and bomb the hell out of it or tell India to go and bomb the hell out of Pakistan. And at the present time, the only thing that is holding back India and America and Israel from doing anything against Pakistan is because Pakistan is a nuclear power and it can hit back very, very forcefully. And, of course, there is the other uh, the two other factors. One is China, the other is Russia. 
Pakistan has uh, had close relations with with China. China, through its CPEC project, uh, had vowed to uh, invest about 60 billion dollars in Pakistan, of which 20 billion have already been invested in building various infrastructure, etc. And the Americans don't want that to proceed. They want to sabotage that because obviously they see China as a rival. They want to blockade it. They want to block it off from international markets. And as far as Russia is concerned, uh, that was another factor that uh, Imran Khan had gone to visit Russia. And he did it a day before Russia uh, launched its military operation in Ukraine. And that also bugged America that, you know, how come Imran Khan went there? And that that visit had been planned months in advance. And uh, Imran Khan was very keen to uh, normalize relations with Russia, which in the past, unfortunately, had been quite frosty. And so uh, America was upset about that as well. And that also was one of the reasons why they wanted to get rid of him, because he was acting too independently. Well, it sounds like the people of Pakistan uh, are really being mistreated by their leadership. And, of course, that's gone back through history, as your article describes. And I wonder if and when they're going to step forward and step up. It seems like there have been some huge rallies for Imran Khan. He won an election in hostile territory in Punjab. And based on my experience, it it strikes me as likely that uh, people, especially the more literate people in Pakistan, are more aware of the real state of affairs in the world than the average Westerners. Uh, I remember there was a poll uh, back in, I think, 2008 uh, that showed uh, only 3% of Pakistanis believed that al-Qaeda did 9-11. And so 97% didn't accept that. And I thought, that's quite a testimony to the accuracy of the understanding of the world of the people of Pakistan. So they're starting to rise up in favor of Ibrahim Khan, as we would expect that they would. Um, So where is that all going? Well, one of the remarkable things that has happened in Pakistan in recent years is that uh, Imran Khan has been able to mobilize the people. He has kept in touch with them regularly, uh, talking to them, briefing them about the state of affairs in the country. And so when he was ousted, uh, and this is something that he himself uh, admitted as well, uh, he said that, he went home and he thought he will, after three and a half years, he would relax with his wife. And um, he, he, in an interview, he himself admitted, he said that I didn't even want to check my cell phone messages because I just wanted, I was tired and I just wanted to relax a little bit and, and get some rest. And he said that when I turned on the television, I was shocked to see that Hundreds of thousands of people had come out into the streets of Pakistan to protest his ouster. I mean, he was not expecting that. And he was stunned by that. And this also stunned the military establishment because they thought, you know, once Imran Khan is overthrown, he's removed from power, people will just forget about him. And yet he had touched a chord with the people. And there are very good reasons, not only because Imran Khan had done you know, great things in the past before coming into politics, not only because he had kept in touch with the people, but because when he was in power, he actually instituted certain programs that helped the ordinary poor people. So, for instance, one of them, one of the programs that he established throughout the country was these shelters for homeless people. Literally hundreds of thousands of beds have been provided in major cities in Pakistan where when people, you know, especially people from the villages that come for whatever reason to the cities, that they would have a bed and a roof over their heads. Then he set up, uh, you know, uh, food, food kitchens so that, you know, people can come and they can get food. And literally millions of people received free food. Uh, These were run by uh, Imran Khan's government. Then he set up what is referred to as Ehsas program, which means, uh, you know, a program of empathy uh, so that, you know, people in distress, etc., he would help them. He provided loans to uh, people, uh, to, to widows, to orphans, to young students, 
to people that are destitute so that they can begin to stand on their feet. And then he also issued health cards, free health cards. So three and a half million people in Pakistan benefited from those health cards that they could go to a government hospital and receive treatment without being charged for the treatment or the medicines that they got. That's now, a lot are, better than the know, poor people have here in the United States. Yeah, exactly. You know, in, a, in a country like Pakistan, where, you know, unfortunately the, the rich and the, and, and the elite uh, live a life of opulence and extra, ex, extreme extravagance, here was a man who was himself very rich. He didn't come from a poor family. He came from a very wealthy family. And yet he had this feeling for the ordinary people. And this is something that the people in Pakistan saw, they realized, and they appreciated it. And that's why they came out for him. And even now, any time he issues a call, if he issues a call in the morning to say, well, I want people to come out in the evening, literally millions of people in every city in Pakistan come out, literally. I mean, this is, you know, this is unheard of. In the history of Pakistan, that and for, for some reason the, the New York Times isn't putting this uh, at the top of the front page. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that you know, literally millions of people would come out in his support, and and in fact, you know, there was a, a, an occasion on May 25th when he had asked the people to come out, and uh, he, the, the literally millions of people came out, and the government actually blocked his way. Some of his, you know, people, particularly the youth managed to break the barricades and the containers, the, these huge containers that the, the current imported regime had placed in their way. These youth broke those barriers, and they were heading for, for a showdown uh, when, when the government had mobilized not only the police forces but rangers. Now, rangers are, of course, a, a sort of semi-military force, and they were prepared to shoot at people. And it was at that point that Imran Khan called off his march because he did not want uh, people to get killed. So the point that I'm making is that, you know, on his call, he can mobilize the people. And on his call, he can also demobilize the people because the people have so much faith in him. But looking forward, I, I see that if, if these, the, the, the regime that has been imposed over there and the military continue to play their dirty games, then I fear that Pakistan may end up in a civil war situation. And in fact, you know, I I have sort of, you know, spoken to various people and I've said, I unfortunately do not see any other way out except a civil war and to confront this regime and their backers in the military. And unless and until they defeat them in the streets of Pakistan, unfortunately, they will not be able to bring about a meaningful change. Like, you know, you, you referred to those... Um, by elections that were held in Punjab province, which is uh, essentially enemy territory as far as Imran Khan is concerned, because Punjab had been ruled by the Pakistan Muslim League uh, Nawaz group for more than 30 years. And they had, of course, corrupted the bureaucracy, the police, everything. And uh, on July 17th, when these by-elections were held for 20 seats, the entire... uh, you know, machinery in that province, the bureaucracy, the police, the election officers, etc., they did their damnedest to cheat in elections. Like, you know, people were stuffing ballot boxes by the hundreds. And yet Imran Khan had told his supporters that they are not going to leave the election offices until the returning officer had announced the result. And those people stood there, they they braved the the, uh, the beatings and the, and all of the criminal activities of the of the regime and out of those 20 seats Imran Khan's party managed to win 17 seats and the opposition won only two seats and one was an independent and that was because they had to really fight tooth and nail in order to make sure that they don't steal the elections now imagine this thing happening at the state level, when there are more than 300 seats being contested. Now, that means that Imran Khan's supporters would have to be in every constituency to prevent these criminals from uh, stealing the election again. And there are so many ways to cheat. Uh, you know, even in, the, in those 20 by-elections, uh, people that were Imran Khan's supporters 
when they arrived at their polling station, they were told that, you know, they are not uh, registered here. They have to go miles and miles away to another polling station. Now imagine in, in the blistering heat of summer, people have been waiting in line for hours and hours, sweating like hell, and then when they go inside, they are told, no, that's, they are in the wrong, wrong constituency. And they're deliberately being misled. And then there were literally thousands of people that had already died whose votes were cast in these elections for the opposition parties, you know, the, 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 the regime that, that, that has been imposed on the people of Pakistan. So the way I see it is that um, definitely Pakistan's political system is thoroughly corrupt. It is not responsive to the needs of the people of Pakistan. And the only way to bring about change is to demolish that corrupt system and replace it with a genuine system. And it unfortunately will not happen through elections because these criminals that are embedded in every sphere of life, whether in the bureaucracy, in the police forces, in the intelligence agencies, in the election commission, they will do their damnedest to frustrate Imran Khan coming back to power through elections. So based on that, I mean, he, may, he might still pull it off, but, you know, the chances, the way I see it, I read it, they appear uh, very, very low because of the fact that the entire system is loaded against Imran Khan. And they don't want an honest man because he is going to then expose their crimes and their uh, their theft and their... I'm going to just imagine the, the person who's uh, who's been imposed as prime minister, both he and his son are out on bail on 16 billion rupees money laundering charges. I mean, you know, you would think that somebody who has been charged with these serious crimes would have an iota of decency to not come back into power. And so the moment they came into power, the first thing they did was to wipe out these charges against them change the very laws under which they had been charged, abolish those laws, and actually the people that, that had investigated their crimes, three or four of them ended up dead. Somebody had a heart attack, somebody had some other problem. They, they, these are actually criminals, murderers. They kill people that investigate their crimes. And the interior minister, which would be the equivalent of you know, Homeland Security, Department of Homeland Security Chief in the U.S., that man, his name is Rana Sanaullah, he, is in, he has been involved in 18 murders. He, he, had peop, he ordered people killed because they were his either political opponents or, uh, you know, opponents uh, in, in terms of, you know, land disputes. And he was he, he was also involved in drug smuggling, and he was caught red-handed by the anti-narcotics force, and he was charged with uh, possession of drugs, and yet he's the interior minister of the country, and he has you know obviously abolished those laws under which he was charged with these crimes. So when you have a country that is being run by criminals, by murderers, by money launderers, by you know drug dealers. Unfortunately, the future of that country is very bleak. And behind that is, of course, the military. And behind the military is the United States. And, of course, the United States is run by a gangster elite as well. They hide exactly. their crimes a little better. <laughs> but it's, it's pretty much the same situation, right, with yes. the CIA yes. dominating global drug smuggling since World War II, just, to, just for starters. Uh, and that leads to the sort of quasi-parallel between this popular movement for Imran Khan in Pakistan and the Trump movement here, where they, they're always calling election fraud. They're saying that the deep state torpedoed Trump and uh, all of this. But it does seem to me that uh, it's, it's, it's interesting, all of these parallels, but then in terms of the personalities, they're kind of opposite with Trump being a clinical narcissist and borderline sociopath. Uh, and uh, Imran Khan being an uncommonly honest man. Uh, so it's, it's kind of a weird funhouse mirror comparison. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, of course. I mean, you know, the, obviously I wouldn't, uh, um, you know, draw any, any parallel between Imran Khan and Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump was a, was a, was a you know, uh, as you said, a narcissist and, and, and 
all kinds of other terrible things associated with him, whereas Imran Khan is, is an extremely honest person. He's completely clean. Uh, he, he wants to help, uh, you know, the ordinary people. And I'd, I'd even add this, that uh, for the first time in a very long time that a leader of a Muslim country like Pakistan emerged who even gained uh, enormous respect in the Muslim world uh, because he spoke about the honor of the Prophet. Uh, he spoke uh, against Islamophobia worldwide. And he even uh, forced, it was during his time in office, that he forced the United Nations to declare March 15th as uh, Islamophobia Day, to draw attention to Islamophobia worldwide. And that was a resolution that was passed through the United Nations General Assembly, which was put forward by Pakistan with backing from uh, a, a number of countries in the Organization of Islamic Conference, but it was primarily Pakistan under Imran Khan's leadership that pushed for it. So, you know, Imran Khan has won accolades from Muslims around the world for taking up these positions. We know that, you know, before Imran Khan, the Islamic Republic of Iran uh, had taken this position and it, had all, it was always spoken out about the rights of the Muslims and that included the rights of the Palestinian people. And Imran Khan was under enormous pressure to recognize Israel, etc. And he said, unless and until the Palestinian issue is resolved, there is absolutely no way that, we, that Pakistan is going to recognize Israel. And of course, once Imran Khan was removed from power, then there was a Pakistani delegation that visited Israel. Uh, it, it included various you know, uh, political players, it included journalists, etc., which clearly indicated that uh, even Zionist Israel was very happy to see uh, Imran Khan go because he stood up for principle. And so, uh, you know, when, when you look at his, his performance both at home as well as on the broader uh, international scene, uh, he really stood heads and shoulders above most of the other uh, rulers in the Muslim world. And he won people's hearts because they could see that he was sincere, that he wanted to do good for his people and the Muslim world. And he stood up for principle. And so, you know, my, uh, when I look at, uh, you know, the situation uh, going forward, I really fear that, uh, you know, Imran Khan might be physically eliminated if he cannot be contained because that's the only way that uh, they can get him out of the way uh, and allow these criminals to continue to rule uh, in, in Pakistan. Uh, and there have been, uh, you know, not only uh, various political forces have talked about this, they've openly talked about eliminating Imran Khan and Imran Khan himself has said that I know that there are forces that want to eliminate me, but I've already written a letter in which I've identified the people that I will that I've asked my family and my political allies that they should charge these people to be responsible for my murder if I am uh, eliminated. And of course, he said that I've you know given this letter and and put it in a safe place. Uh, soon after his, uh, you know, announcement like this, his two of his cell phones were stolen, uh, and I, I don't think it is uh, difficult to speculate as to who stole those cell phones. But you know, obviously, that information uh, about those that letter was not in those cell phones. So then the cell phones uh, were recovered and mysteriously recovered and returned to him. So. I fear that, you know, there may be an attempt on his life to eliminate him. And if that should happen, I'm afraid that would be the end of Pakistan. There will be not only civil war in the country, but the country would definitely break up. It would not survive. And that's wow. something that the military really needs to take into account because 
they are playing a very very dangerous and dirty game for their personal benefits and for their masters in washington dc and in the pentagon you know i i was understood that there were people with different orientations in the pakistani military for example i interviewed general hamid gul on the show um, maybe 15 years ago quite a long time ago uh, he was a brave voice of 9/11 truth from the very time it happened and seemed like a man with some principles uh and that's rare when somebody reaches the very top of the pakistani military intelligence hierarchy and so you know one would hope that given the alternatives you know either the destruction of pakistan or somebody in the military figures out a way to work out a modus vivendi with imran khan that the latter choice would be the obvious one and you know but don't they think that way well you know you you are right uh, you see uh, imran khan has enormous support in the pakistani military at the present time what has happened is that the 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 few generals at the top uh, led by the military chief or the army chief general bajwa and a f- three or four generals around him are the ones who are running the show and the way the pakistani military is structured is that the army chief has enormous powers he can you know remove any generals from a general from his post and consign him to some very very you know um innocuous position etc he is even actually they you know they retired army officers including many generals who voiced their support for imran khan publicly uh, general bajwa has stopped their pensions can you imagine people who have served 30 40 years in in the military and they are entitled to those pensions and general bajwa has stopped their pensions wow that that's pretty bad here in the united of states course. they, they, they fire people that, you know how desperate this man is now yeah, you you mentioned uh, general hamid gol uh, he was an incredibly brave man i knew him personally i'd met him many times we were in fact even invited him to canada back in 1995 and um, i'd met him on a number of occasions when i visited pakistan and you know he made it of course to become the uh, chief of you know isi or director general of isi the, the intelligence agency but he himself told me that he was to be appointed the army chief but benazir bhutto who was the prime minister at the time told him that the americans won't let me so i'm afraid i cannot make you the army chief and so she you know appointed general hamid gul to be the chairman of um, you know defense industries in pakistan and general amit gul in his um, response to benazir bhutto said that uh, you know i'm a soldier i'm not a manager so i cannot accept this post although it was a very lucrative post he would have made a lot of money but he was a man of principle he said i'm a soldier i'm not going to accept this post and he handed in his resignation and that's exactly what the americans wanted because you know he was one man who he was so brilliant i mean you know when you look you know uh, listen to his interviews that he had given 10 15 years ago he he died actually in 2015 uh you know 10 15 years ago he had given interviews and he had made certain uh, predictions about the future they are so incredible that he you know got those things so absolutely accurate i mean one wonders that you know the man was a genius that he could predict the outcome of uh, issues way into the future and this is so so remarkable about him because he was also one of those true genuine pakistani military officers uh, who had his heart in the well-being of the country and of course you know when when he was alive i mean i had spoken to him when he had come here and i told him that he should work with imran khan try to you know guide him in the right direction and he was working with imran khan and of course you know unfortunately general hamid gul died in 2015 when imran khan had not come to power uh, but uh, the fact is that he did work closely with him and i'm sure he had some uh, influence on imran khan's thinking in terms of clarifying many issues for him uh, especially on the global scene yes i i understand that i've actually heard from uh, gordon duff who i recently interviewed he's the 
ex-CIA uh, editor at Veterans Today, and now he's, he's at the intel.com. And uh, apparently, no, he, he has known, uh, he knew Hamid Gul as well as Imran Khan. He was telling me back, I think, when I first met Gordon in sort of around 2010 or something, 2009, 2009, 2010, that Imran Khan was going to be the future leader of Pakistan. <laughs> he said, you want to meet the future leader of Pakistan? And unfortunately, I never got to set that up. Uh, but yeah, it sounded like the, an understanding of the complete fraud of the so-called war on terror and yes. the corruption of the way the global system works was something that, that uh, Hamid Gul understood and perhaps conveyed that uh, to Imran Khan. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, um, uh, Hamid Gul obviously uh, was very clear about uh, the global situation, what is happening. He knew exactly what was going on in Afghanistan. And he had even predicted that, you know, ultimately the Americans would be defeated in Afghanistan by the Taliban and they would drive them out of Afghanistan. This he had said many years ago. And, and you see how this came about, you know, exactly the way he had predicted it. And he had also, you know, on, on, on many other issues, he had uh, said uh, uh, as to how events are going to unfold because he, he was a very clear thinker. He could analyze things very, very clearly, and he was not taken in by any of this rhetoric that comes out of, you know, different places. And so his analysis was always, uh, it, it always stood the test of time. Uh, and, and it's, you know, I, I, wish, I wish he had been alive. Uh, but, of course, you know, we, we have our time on earth and we have to uh, move on. Uh, but I think he did whatever he could during his lifetime in terms of um, uh, trying to convey the right information to people like Imran Khan and getting his bearings right and, and I'm glad that, you know, Imran Khan has, uh, able, has been able to understood these situations and he has stood his ground and he has not compromised on principles, which is something that, that the people of Pakistan obviously admire about him. And not only the people of Pakistan, but all around the world, uh, Muslims all around the world uh, that, that want to stand for truth and justice. Right. In fact, everybody who stands for truth. Do they pedal the propaganda line that that's why Truth Jihad Radio is there is to fill in that gap. Well, I think we're hitting the bumper music, so it's time to say goodbye. Thank you so much, Zafar Bangash. I appreciate it. that. Was, that was actually a brilliant summary of the situation in Pakistan. So I, I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you and, and God bless. It's my great pleasure, Kevin, and all the best with your uh, Truth Jihad radio, and I hope everything goes well in the future as well. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's uh, Zafar Bangash of the Crescent International Magazine. You can find it at crescent-online.net. Back in the next hour with Gerald Sussman on the propaganda war in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Some parallels to what we just heard about Pakistan. So stick around for that. Kevin Barrett. Shihad.com.